I don't think any of the career decisions that I have made were driven by money. Like I'm, I'm actually very clear that none of them were, were driven by money. Obviously, you know, you negotiate salary and packages and things like this. But I've found that you have to make the decision to change your career for the right reasons. And, and money is not the right reason. Welcome to Arda Spotlight. Live long and prosper. I'm Sita Sengupta, your host and the co-founder and CEO of Arda Finance. In this podcast series, we don't just scratch the surface. We delve deep into the mindsets of some of the most successful founders, entrepreneurs, and investors out there. We dissect the pivotal choices that have set the trajectory of their extraordinary lives. We get into the nuts and bolts of how financial strategy and financial thinking can serve a purpose-driven life. So if you're looking for insights that are as intellectual as they're actionable, you're in the right place. The topics covered in this podcast are conversational and for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to serve as investment advice and is not a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any particular security or investment. All opinions expressed by Arda employees and third parties are not necessarily those of Arda Finance. Today's guest brings a wealth of experience and insights from the world of finance and technology. Karim Tamsamani is the Chief Executive Officer of Cardlytics, an advertising platform at the bank's digital channels. Before his role at Cardlytics, Karim held significant leadership positions at Stripe, where he played a pivotal role as Head of Global Partnerships and Head of Financial Products. Prior to Stripe, Karim spent almost 12 years at Google, where he ran the Asia-Pacific business and where I had the opportunity to work very closely with him. We grew the business, we built a lot of new products together and just had a lot of fun. Born and raised in France with a family background from Morocco, Karim brings a really unique and diverse perspective to the world of business and technology. He's lived and run businesses in nine different countries. He's a strategic thinker, a really charismatic leader, and an incredible human being. And I'm really excited to delve into his journey and insights on our podcast today. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's get started. Kareem, thank you so much for joining us on Live Long and Prosper. It's so good to see you again after a while. Great to see you too, Cezanne. In good form. So I can't wait to see you face to face very soon. Yeah, very soon. I'm looking forward to that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your life. Like, I'd love to get into a couple of uh, key pivotal changes in your career. Um, I know of a few that you've done that have known each other the last you know, 10, 15 years. Uh, but um, the ones do you think are the most pivotal? And then I'd love for you to like talk a little bit about what that change was and then what went into that thinking? How did your career aspirations fare into it, your personal life, uh, concept, thinking about money? Uh, you know, how do you go about making that decision? So let's start with like maybe the first major pivotal decision that you think is, and you've had so many changes in your life from US to Europe to US to Asia to US. Yeah, I think it'd be fascinating for our listeners to learn more. Thanks. Well, um, I think that the first fundamental decision that I think affected my career certainly uh, in my life overall is um, the one that I made right after uh, finished college to have my first job not in France where I was born and and uh, where I had sort of built all my life uh, so far, uh, not in Morocco where my family is from, but in Hong Kong and. Uh, you know, I did my military service in Hong Kong. I could have done it in France. I could have done it in Spain as well, where I, I had an offer to, to, to do it. And essentially, I did my military service in a company 
And that was sort of uh, the two choices that you had in France at the time. It was compulsory, so you could either do 10 months in the army, or um, if a company wanted you and you had a high enough degree, you could um, have an opportunity to do it uh, overseas. And uh, when I got the offer in Hong Kong, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go and see what it's like. I have never been to Hong Kong. I mean, I had traveled to a bunch of places, but I had never been to Hong Kong and was really attracted to do that. And, and it really dramatically changed me, it changed my career uh, for a number of reasons. One, because it really forces you to very quickly adapt to different cultures, different ways of working. Uh, and it taught me a tremendous amount uh, there. And, and two, um, I was very fortunate that um, because I was um, you know, still very young and, and completely malleable, um, you know, I had this appetite for learning and um, I was given way higher responsibilities than my capabilities at the time. And, and because of that, you learn very fast, but you also you know, discover some things about yourself and learn a lot more about the company and the environment that, that you would normally. And, and I was really, really fortunate that I, you know, going back to the time when I had to make the decisions, I, I don't think I had any hesitation whatsoever. And, and uh, it, it really was a, a vital decision for what happened next for me. And did, did like concepts of how much you were earning, money, those kinds of things play into the addition or it was really about the exposure and a new exciting place? Yeah, it, it's really interesting. I don't think any of the career decisions that I have made were driven by money. Like I'm, I'm actually very clear that none of them were, were driven by money. Uh, obviously, you know, you negotiate salary and packages and things like this, but I've found that you have to make the decision to change your career for the right reasons. And money is not the right reasons. You have to make them because you see a challenge that's interesting, because you are going to learn, because you're going to work with great people. You know, and, and you know, the best example of that for me is, you know, I had a great position before I joined Google. Um, so just for background, I, I joined Google in Australia in 2007. I had a great position working for essentially uh, one of the largest uh, uh, publisher of uh, newspapers, magazines, and online uh, sites uh, in Australia uh, called Fairfax. You know, I was reporting to the CEO. I was, you know, very comfortable in many ways. Um, and uh, you know, while uh, I certainly don't mean to say that sort of Google wasn't clearly obvious to many people uh, that Google was incredibly successful, uh, a lot of very senior people who were advising me told me not to to go to Google um, then. And Google was small in Australia, and essentially I was moving to run Google in Australia, and it was really, really small at the time. Obviously, Google is multiple Xs, the size of Fairfax now, and then the, most of the media companies in Australia. So it seems fairly obvious as a move uh, now. But then when I moved, uh, it was a much, much smaller book of business that I, I was going to look after. And my package overall was much, much smaller than what I was having. So it was really not about money. It was clearly understanding that I would learn a lot because while I had exposure to online, I, I, no, Google was full into uh, the internet space uh, in, a, in a much stronger way that um, I would learn a different way of working. And, and that really changed a lot of the theories I had around management. And therefore, you know, well, you know, obviously money is important and how you uh, figure things out in your life. I know I linked a lot of ways to uh, your capabilities on the money front. Uh, I think it's really important not to make uh, career decisions based on money. 
Yeah, I'd love to get a little bit into another pivotal change that you made. Like, I think you left Google when you were in an incredible position. You're running all of APAC and, you know, very senior leader, very respected. And then you joined another startup and you moved countries uh, to Stripe in the US. And I'd love for you to, like, maybe talk a little bit about that addition, the thinking and, you know, all the different factors that went into went into that. Um, I know that the decision... Um was very difficult in in a lot of ways and it was both driven by family and driven by sort of my my need to do something different uh, so just to, to give some level of background i had spent six years in, in asia and i had the pleasure of working with you and many other people that are incredibly uh, accomplished and, and really wonderful to work with it, it was really a, a great run that uh, that we had in asia and the business did incredibly well during during that period of time from a, a place where you no, know, the business had a lot of issues before um, I, I moved back to Asia. But you know, after you know, five years, I spent six years of all in, in, in the business there. But after five years, I started to feel like I wasn't learning anymore. And, and the days seemed to essentially repeat themselves uh, over and over. And I was traveling a ton and that was putting it all on me and the family. And at the time, both our daughters, we have three kids, you know, two daughters and a son, and both our daughters were in boarding school uh, in the U.S. because they wanted continuity in their study uh, because we we had moved you know, initially to Japan, then to Singapore. So it wasn't just like we had settled in, in one country. So we were very far from the family. So I, I, you know, my wife was really pushing to ensure that we get closer to them and I wanted to, to get closer to them as well. I missed them. And our son as well was uh, you know, at, a, at a time where he needed continuity and he needed to get into... Uh, school in the U.S. in sixth grade, which is a lot easier to enter than later grades. Um, so uh, we needed to do that. We also had a house in California, which we bought the first time we moved to California and had rebuilt and it was just done. So there was a sort of a lot of impetus from a family perspective. And then from my side, I think there was a reality that essentially the best jobs at, at Google, aside from my job that I absolutely love running Asia and my job before that, starting the mobile at, uh, business teams, the best jobs at Google are really uh, driven by um, uh, leaders that have product and engineering backgrounds. And I didn't have that. And I, I wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly agree with how Google is set up in the sense that I, I understand why these roles are going to product engineering leaders. I think there are opportunities for Google to veer outside of that. But, you know, that's how the company is being run. And, and um, it's been very successful in uh, following um, that, that route. So... I had to go somewhere else to be able to find a, a role where I had more uh, ability to make decisions on the product and engineering side. And, and, you know, at Google, I worked very closely with you and I felt like I had a lot of influence on what we're doing on product engineering, but but I wasn't making decisions. Uh, and uh, so when I decided to leave and we decided to move back to the US, I had discussion with a number of companies and um, I was very fortunate that uh, Stripe offered me the ability to run product engineering for a number of new products they wanted to launch. So uh, I started banking as a service, Stripe Treasury, um, Stripe Issuing, run Stripe Capital, lending as a service. Uh, for a bit of time, run Stripe Connections and Stripe Climate as well. Um, so I, I was v very lucky that that company allowed me to run product engineering teams and I learned a tremendous amount, of, amount during that time as well. So it, it, was a, it was a great run. But again, it was about, obviously, the family side of the decision, but also the learning potential for me uh, as part of the decision-making process rather, rather than a, a monetary consideration there. And how do you find the experience of going from 
you know, business. And to be honest, I, I feel like in Asia, you were very, very involved in Google Pay and a lot of the products we built on NBU in a, in a very, very pivotal role. Uh, you know, being being light, you know, day-to-day running it. But I think, uh, I, I, you know, at least for me, your advice and your perspective was exceedingly important. And But how is it actually running and doing the transition to running product and enjoying games day-to-day? And how is that, trans- what do you learn? Like, how do you, what advice would you give to someone else who's looking to make that kind of transition in their careers? I think first, a lot of leaders are very, very capable of making that transition. There are a lot of business leaders that don't necessarily have product engineering background in the same way as product uh, and engineering leaders uh, also have the ability to run full companies There's, uh, uh, and and be very successful in talking to customers and and, and gaining traction there. You know, f- for me, to, to some degree, it was very confronting particularly in the first few months because I was going into a totally new business area um, for, for us. Like payments is very, very complex and I really had to learn a tremendous amount around payments. And what really is important is that getting into very detailed understanding of the problems that you're trying to solve for users is a lot more complex than sort of my sort of more thin layer of understanding when we were at Google because, you know, we had great product engineering leads that um, that were really providing a lot more support from that perspective. And, and at Stripe, I, I really needed to read a lot more about um, sort of the product uh, uh, needs at, at customer level, uh, about the architecture of uh, um, our products and, and sort of the, the decisions we're making longer term. Uh, about how it worked with the rest of Stripe's ecosystem. Uh, so it, it was a pretty steep learning curve and, and long learning curve as well. Like uh, I, I think you, you have, if you want to do that transition, you have to be uh, ready to spend a lot of time learning and a lot of time reading and a lot of time asking a lot of questions to people. I, I don't think the asking question part is, is different to any role, but but I think you have to be a lot more ready not to assume too much because of sort of past knowledge, um, but but really question the teams a, a lot and, and and learn from them. Uh, it's, uh, that's great perspective, and and you're right. Like any, you know, while the beauties of our career is every few years we can switch to a different skill set, a different industries, and uh, I guess the advice you gave there is very pertinent to any of them, anybody doing this, especially with AI coming after like every industry at this point, like. We'd have to become much better at learning about new industries, new roles, new skill sets that we can, um, you know, acquire and demonstrate. The, the thing that I didn't mention here as well, which I, I think is really critical and important, like I, I did nothing in APAC uh, or in mobile before uh, when I was at Google or you know in other roles without a phenomenal team around uh, around me and. The way you structure the team, meaning the capabilities that you have around you, you know, people that have different skill sets, people that disagree with you, is what essentially makes the outcomes good, uh, not yourself. And, and as, as long as you really understand that and really build the, the right teams and capabilities uh, around you, then, then you have an opportunity to be successful. You still need to execute and you still need to collaborate appropriately, but, but nothing is done without the right people. How have you thought about building great teams? I mean, I've seen some of the teams you've built and they've been you know, extremely high-performing, experts in their areas, but get along really well. Like, what have you, how have you found these people? How have you thought about structuring the team, giving them the right incentives, and then developing them? First, you have to have real clarity with regards to 
what you expect the main tenets of the a job to be. Really understanding, for example, when we were working on uh, a China business. So when, when I moved back to APAC for context, the China business for Google was, um, you know, not growing. It was actually a negative growth year on year, uh, which was really odd for Google in, in many ways. And uh, obviously, um, as many people would know, Google had a tremendous amount of restrictions with regards to what it could do in China. Uh, it could um, not provide any search results. Uh, we had sort of a, a display network, but it was a very small business. Uh, but we had a, a fairly large team, product teams, engineering teams, sales teams, uh, but we're just not getting in any traction. And, and really understanding that the way the team was operating before and essentially trying to run things as they were uh, when we had uh, search in, in China was just not the right way to do it. And I needed someone who was more partner-driven and strategy-driven to be able to think about how we would change the way we look at the market and uh, do deals at local level to enable a Chinese company, Chinese companies to advertise on Google at global level. Uh, so more of an export business rather than a local business. And um, you know, I, I once I identified the sort of core set of skills that I wanted to, to have, I basically zeroed in onto. One of uh, the executives that I had uh, encountered at Google, who I thought was, you know, excellent at these skills, um, you know, who you were very closely with, who now runs Asia Pacific for Google, Scott Beaumont. Uh, and, you know, it was controversial at the time. Like a lot of people uh, within Google, uh, including the leadership team that I was part of, were saying, hey, why are you going to bring someone non-Chinese? You know, why are you bringing a British person who's never lived in China? Uh, to, to be running that. And he ended up being incredibly successful, um, very successful. He, he, you know, straight away did all the right things. He learned Chinese very quickly. He uh, you know, really spent time understanding uh, the business that we had and spent time with clients and understanding the opportunity. And, um, you know, he, he was both then successful in driving China to be one of the greatest contributor to growth for Google globally um, for a period of time, uh, but also you know, contributed well beyond that in our Asia-Pacific team, overall in our Asia-Pacific leadership team, uh, to try and, and continue to improve the way we're collaborating together and, and you know, bringing ideas to other colleagues, mentoring other colleagues. So, you know, again, zeroing on the capabilities that you want to see, making sure that you have the people that are going to help each other. Uh, was really important, and and you know Scott was one example, but uh, I could I could have a story about every single person on the leadership team uh, because they 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 all really you know including yourself obviously uh, who you know was very kind to give us a lot of your time as well as as uh, the the lead for Google Engineering and and you know uh, Tez and and Google Pay for Asia to um, to really uh, uh, help us think differently about how we should run the business. So maybe before we jump into thinking about how you think about money and finances, I just want to touch a little bit. You went from um, private companies to running um, a public company now, and that's a very different uh, role and skill set. And I'm sure uh, it's it's been an interesting experience. And so, uh, what was the thought behind it? And obviously, you know, I'd love to know a little bit more about how the experience has been and how you've learned, or oh, whatever you can, whatever you can say. I know you're a public company CEO. That's also constrained in what you can say. Yeah, there's different constraints now with regards to what I can say. But uh, listen, I, I, no, I realized at some stage that 
um, I while I've learned a, a lot at, at Stripe, I uh, wanted to make more decisions myself and being able to test myself in, in running a business. And we didn't talk much about it, but a lot of my experiences, including at Google, were really about uh, turning around businesses. Um, you know, at Google, I talked briefly about China, but Japan was not in a good state as well. When, um, when I went back to Asia, uh, before Google, I turned around businesses in South Korea, where I lived for a period of time, in Australia as well. Um, and um, this business that I'm running now called Cardlytics uh, was not in, in a good place financially, uh, was not in a good place from a taken product perspective, um, uh, and faced a number of other challenges um, that probably are harder for me to, to get into. But um, uh, I, I really like the idea of having that challenge again to um, you know turn around the business that I think has fundamentally incredible foundations. Uh, we have you know, deals with um, all the key banks in, in the US and essentially serve the tech and the content uh, uh, for rewards into the ecosystem. Uh, we bought a business that essentially helps retailers understand uh, their known and unknown customers, where they shop, how they shop, how much, um, and, and provides the insights that then provide the capabilities for CPG companies to uh, buy into the retail media network environment. Um, so the foundations of the business are, are incredible. And um, on top of that, the business is in two areas, which you know, I understand advertising and um, you know, finance banking. Um, so I, I thought it was a right opportunity for me to test myself as a, as a, as a CEO. You know, I've been there just over a year now. We've made a lot of changes. Uh, we've gone from essentially uh, um, a run rate of you know, 50 plus a million loss in adjusted EBITDA to now uh, last quarter of, of close to 4 million adjusted EBITDA uh, uh, positive. So we uh, we still have a lot of um, a lot of obstacles on our way, and a lot more we we deliver. But again, it's been a very similar playbook: be clear on the strategy, get the right people uh, in, both you know bringing people from external, but also promoting internally, and and then execution. Like I know, st- strategy is is really important, but um, you really need to execute when when you are you know wanting to accomplish things in the company, and you know we are. Uh, we're really uh, trying to drive hard to execute so that we can be much better partners for the banks that are uh, partnering with us and that we can deliver um, much stronger results for the investors of the business. Um, so turning from career, I want to talk a little bit about money. As far as uh, I know, Kareem, you weren't born rich. You've you know professionally been very successful. Um, how do you learn about uh, money and where did your concepts of finance, how to think about money, how did that uh, originate? Yeah, it, it's really interesting to me because I, I really think that um, uh, at least in France where I grew up, but I see that with my kids uh, being in the US education system, we're really terrible teaching young people about how to take care of money or invest. And, and we just keep on making the same mistakes consistently, not providing the data and insights that people need providing sort of the wrong level of incentives for essentially people to spend money as quickly as they earn it rather than figure out how they save or invest the money. I mean, even the whole way we explain kids how essentially they're going to get, you know, some some level of dollars for the chores that they are 
that they are doing even at home essentially is an incentive to spend it as quickly as possible because the following week they're going to get more money. So there's really very little concept of, of saving everywhere. Um, I, as you know, my wife is very passionate about this area. And she's she's um, you know worked in finance and was a financial advisor and, and had her own financial advice company at some stage in, in Australia. But um, but you know for me personally, I would say I was terrible for a very very long period of my life with regards to hard treated money. Um, when I, you know, when I lived in Hong Kong, just uh, when I started my first job, I was basically spending my paycheck. When I lived in Korea, after that, uh, I, I continued buying things just because the money was available, not not really thinking about how, how I would save. Um, so uh, I didn't have sort of the right understanding and prioritization of how to think about money uh, so that that's one side, and we can go deeper into it and sort of how I'm thinking about where I invest now. Um, but but two, I, w- I would say as well, there's not only the education about money, but there's also then the decisions that you want to make as an individual with regards to what's important to you. And some of these decisions are not necessarily rational money decision. And I think at some stage as an individual, you have to be comfortable that you're making a decision that's not necessarily rational from a money perspective. But rational from a work-life balance perspective or family perspective. So to give an example of that, we moved. So we lived in nine countries uh, with a family. So we moved a ton. I made the decision that I wanted every time we moved to make it as comfortable as possible for the family uh, and myself, obviously. Um, so we overspent on you know renting houses uh, when we moved to different places, houses or, or apartments in, in different places. Just to make sure that you know it it felt comfortable and, and easier just to experience um, uh, a different place and, and you know we all like food so we always always spend on food and restaurants and things like this to create um, uh, you know, the the right environment. I've always always spent on holidays. Uh, I want great experiences, you know, memories with the kids, and you know whether it's you know going into sort of. Uh, uh, attraction parks and and doing lots of things to you know spending um, um, you know great holidays in Italy or France or where where we've been. I've, I've always decided that the experience and the memories that we have with the kids is is more important than keeping some additional dollars that that I can invest. And and no, it's not great because some of these dollars could have been hard at work and and be valued a lot more. But I'm comfortable with this decision with regards to how I want to run my life. And, you know, investing is, is not tricky and different for many people, but you need to have sort of that understanding or that compass for you of what's the right decision, what's the wrong decision, and not worry about what that money could have given to you in sort of the, the future. So like having the right principles in place as you're thinking about how to put your money to work for you. But um, going back to what you said, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say it's the same thing with regards to then how you make investment decisions with regards to defining What's your prioritization? What's your risk appetite? You know, where do you put a, a, a rigid obstacle with regards to how you're going to invest versus where you have a, a loose obstacles that, that, that you might change? So, um, you know, again, I, I'll, I'll give you an example that you <laughs> hopefully very familiar with. Um, I, I hope we can say that in the podcast, but I, I've invested in Arta. Um, and uh, I never invest in single companies. And, and the reason why I never invest in single companies is because I don't feel I have the time to do the right due diligence to understand the business as well as 
people that are incredibly skilled at doing that, you know, venture capitalists, uh, do on a, on a daily basis. And I, I've got a lot of friends that are in the VC business and, you know, they're much, much better than me at, at uh, figuring out um, the potential of a company. Uh, but so it's a mostly hard wall, wall, but when you have incredible people that, you know, you believe in, you can, you know, move the wall a little bit. And that's what I, I did in Arta, but, but I don't want to invest in other uh, single companies because it doesn't make sense for me to spend the time in, in, in doing that. I'd rather a VC does it and not put some money in a VC fund. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit in that conversation because you start something very interesting about talking about how we teach our kids about money and the mental framework. And maybe I can ask the question two different ways. Like, how have you approached it with your kids? Or alternatively, like, what is the advice you would give to like the 18-year-old Kareem or the 21-year-old Kareem uh, about how to think about finances, money, and so that they get, you know, they're able to chart a better or a different course? Yeah. But it's sort of fun to look back and sort of what I talk to the kid, kids about. Um, so the, the, there's a few core insights and, and principles, or uh, most insights, I guess, that we should all have and understand. Um, and obviously, as the data comes in, you, you, you might change them. But like, there's a few things that are clearly in my mind and, and clearly would have potentially changed even more dramatically some of our financial positions if I knew them you know, several years ago. Several decades ago, right? Um, but um, you know, one real estate is so important. I, it's pretty clear from all of the charts that you see that you know I'm, I'm talking about real estate versus income here, not necessarily versus investments. But if you look at how real estate has tracked over the last you know, 20, 30 years versus um, the income that most people have gained, it's just grown dramatically faster. You know, investing in real estate as early as you can in the right location. You know, is going to be a tremendous help for life, which is why it's really a problem that uh, young people are struggling to get loans and and uh, have an ability to buy properties today uh, or are priced out in, in in some places. We should really encourage that because that will help society as a whole. Like if young people can buy homes, not only they should be doing well, but also who will set them selling for life. Uh, two, I, I mean, obviously, I understood the concept. Uh, and so the math makes a ton of sense, but I think no one really applies the concept of compounding interest as well as they should. It's the one secret power that everybody should understand. It is so obvious. It's just like, why have not been doing that like more diligently for years and years and years? And, and you know, you have to have the discipline to, to do it at, at sort, of, sort of the other considerations that I talked earlier about with guess, your priorities and risk appetite. But compounding interest is, is actually quite simple. It, it, um, uh, you know, it, it should be a priority for, um, for everyone to, to really understand that. Um, and, and then, you know, again, having a certain level of discipline to understand where you want to put your money and what returns you're going to get from it rather than being attracted by the purchasing of single shares or single opportunities. Um, the, the, no, that, that's, that's really important. And, and that's why you know, I found that it's very, very hard to uh, make single decisions on a, on a company without having the ability to spend enough time. And you, know, you listen to all of the great people and great advice you see how the depths of knowledge 
that they have across businesses. Like I'm listening to a podcast now that John Collison, um, uh, an interview that John Collison has done with Charlie Munger just before he died. Uh, I'm only halfway through it, but I mean, the wealth of advice that he has on investing is just, I mean, I'll, I'll never be able to, even if I spend the rest of my life now uh, studying it, I, I will never be able to get to the, the wealth of advice that he has. And, and, um, essentially following professionals and, and investing in, in fund or indexes that um, are far greater than, than your capabilities is important. And then finally, I'd, I'd say you know, one, one sentence that um, I think came from uh, Jeff Bezos, um, but um, uh, no, correct me if I'm wrong, wrong there, but I, I think he said that it's really important to invest in things that will change, not things that stay the same. So when you have a great understanding of you know, how, you know, take a very easy example, how the internet was going to change commerce, like investing in all these companies that are essentially uh, going to drive the commerce re revolution, um, you know, Amazon being obviously uh, the key one here, uh, is a great investment. So understanding these trends and essentially uh, uh, allowing you to uh, have a, a ramp into these new areas is, is really important. And then the one that's more risky, but that I think um, are very useful to keep in mind. And again, it depends on, on your risk appetite as, as an investor. Um, but if you see where a place where you disagree with the consensus, then you should essentially bet on it. If the consensus is wrong, uh, you're going to make a lot of money because you know, the, the movement is going to go your way. Uh, but you've got to be prepared that you know there's a lot of smart people that are following a trend, and if the consensus is right, you're gonna you're gonna lose. But if you have conviction, and and it's important to have conviction in this investor, if you have conviction and and you think that a lot of people are wrong, you often are going to have you know uh, in, incredible returns as part of your investments. Yeah, uh, um, that's that's absolutely fantastic uh, advice in in terms of how you think about you know betting on professionals structured ways and the big superpower, which is essentially understanding the value of compounding. And a lot of what we are trying to do with Arda is get people to start thinking about these things earlier and making it super easy for them to do. Sorry to interrupt you there, but I'll jump on that because you know, obviously you, you go back into some of the things that have happened in your life and, and some of the things that you hear. And, and again, one of the things that you hear from Charlie Munger when you, you sort of hear his interviews is that he's fairly dark on some parts of the ecosystem with regards to, you know, some of the wealth advisors, for, for example. And, you know, again, there are some phenomenal wealth advisors, some, some are friends of mine. But I do remember that when I, I started looking at financials, we went to see a wealth advisor in Australia who was basically there to take a cut of my money and, and not provide any useful um, advice. And, and that's why I really liked the way that you know, you setting things up at, at Arta as well, which I, I think is going to be very useful for people and, and, you know, providing the insights, the data, providing the opportunities to get into uh, some of the funds that have been um, providing great returns is, is really important here. And I think people need to get access to the best, get insights to the best, but make a lot of their own decision, not let, you know, someone essentially create a plan that is not tied into uh, any of the returns that they will get themselves. No, that's that's our goal, which is provide access, provide information, and then make it super easy, right? And let people sort of create the create the financial future that they want for themselves. And obviously, there are experts around who you can consult for help. You can learn more, but I think being able to put control in people's hands is is ultimately a big part of what we're trying to do. 
and do the same kind of products and financial services that the ultra wealthy have and be able to bring them there. Um, no, it's been it's been fascinating. I wanted to close with a few um, slightly different types of questions. Uh, so this is a lightning round, and so just whatever you think it comes to your, the top of your mind very quickly. So um, you know, I'll, I'll say a phrase, and then there's a, a underline like you fill in fill in the rest. So if you want to prosper, never underestimate the power of uh, compound interest in real estate. I was hoping you'd say Cobb Barney, but that's great. You added real estate to it too. The three key ingredients to a long, fulfilling life are family, friends, and sports. So true of you. Again, I can really see, I, I could predict those answers. It's beautiful. Uh, the simple joy that he adds years to my life is um, I don't know if it adds years to my life, but having an, a nice glass of wine is, is definitely a simple joy that I really enjoy. No, might not add years, might delete some, but I like it. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure talking to you. And thank you for sharing so openly with uh, everyone that's listening. No, thank you so much for having me. And, and congrats on everything you're building at our time. I look forward to continue to see your, your successes. 